You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. I remember as a child playing ridiculous games at recess with my friends. One of them was to see who could hold their breath the longest. And there was always that one kid who was just so stubborn. His lips would turn blue, and eventually he'd pass out. I remember this one kid being sent home after recess. It wasn't so much that he passed out, it's that he hit his head on the monkey bars on the way down. We were strange as kids. But a similar practice remains as adults. But now it's not our breath that we hold until our lips turn blue. It's our ideas. It's faith. It's our beliefs. In 1958, a choir director named Carl Stowe was hired by East Orange Veterans Hospital in New Jersey. They'd asked him to look at a group of emphysema patients. And the reason they asked Carl was that his expertise was breathing. As a choir director, he was able to help his choir members master the use of their diaphragms so they could maximize the potential of their lungs in singing. As Stowe began to watch and interact with the patients, he was able to quickly diagnose what was going on. He observed that the emphysema patients were taking short, rapid breaths, and he was able to deduce that the problem wasn't that they weren't taking in enough oxygen, but instead, they didn't seem to be exhaling sufficiently. Stowe showed them how to exhale properly by having them lie on their backs while he had them control their breathing better by slowing it down, while he massaged and tapped various parts of their necks, their chest, and their throat to allow them to exhale more air each time they tried. I know it sounds ridiculous, but the results astounded the medical team that hired him. Carl Stowe had these patients harness the power of their diaphragms to maximize the importance of not just inhaling, but equally exhaling. Now, obviously, he wasn't able to cure emphysema, but his techniques helped the patients access more lung capacity. Some of the patients actually began to walk again, and some who had been unable to speak because of their rapid breathing were able to control their diaphragm and talk. And many of the patients were able to leave intensive care and live independently. The professionals that hired him couldn't believe the results. Carl Stowe and his wife, Reese, went on to found the Institute of Breathing Coordination. Now, when I first stumbled upon an article about his research, I was so intrigued. I couldn't help but think of how Carl was modeling something here that is an incredible metaphor for so many things in our lives. So much of why we are not experiencing wholeness and vitality in all aspects of our life, physically, mentally, and spiritually, might be because we don't understand the importance of not just inhaling or acquiring, but also of exhaling, of letting go. Like the incredible rhythm of breathing, it's not just what you can take in, but understanding the capacity in which you inhale is directly related to the capacity in which you can exhale. We live in a culture that not only celebrates the acquisition of stuff and idea, It's a a culture that celebrates the economy of more, and it's killing us. The late 13th century theologian and philosopher Meister Eckert understood the power of letting go. He understood the importance of exhaling. In fact, one of his 
uh, teachings is this idea that God is not found in our soul by adding anything, but by a process of subtraction, of letting go. Now, I have come to discover this to be quite a significant idea in my own life. Sometimes Mary Kondo can challenge us more spiritually than another sermon. Every time you bring something into your house, she would say, remove something, take something out. Find a beautiful rhythm to living. Spirituality as well. Every time you discover something new and exciting about faith, about your spirituality, just consider that maybe there's also something that now you can stop believing, something you can let go of in this moment. Because faith isn't about hoarding good ideas. It's about replacing living ideas with ones that cannot provide, and in fact, might now be harmful. I've come to realize that some of the greatest spiritual moments in my life have not been about inhaling, but exhaling. They, have come when I have acqui- they haven't come when I have acquired some new insight or knowledge, but when I have let go of an old idea or a belief. The ancients taught this. Many of the wisdom traditions teach that the moment of clarity we often seek, or that moment of awakening, that moment of aha, that epiphany, that revelation that we all want that just makes sense of things that seem senseless. The ancients often teach that those moments don't come when we acquire some new piece of information we didn't know before. But instead, those moments often come when we finally let go of something that we've currently believed for so long, but now discover that it's either no longer true or maybe just harmful. Clarity comes in that discovery. In other words, we grow or expand in this moment when you realize you don't know as much as you thought you did, and that understanding fills you with joy instead of fear. Now, this can seem upside down in a world that seeks certainty and information, but certainty can be a dangerous game. There's a truth, um, whereas true faith is not about certainty, but instead trusting the one above circumstances, who doesn't reside in our pocket or even in our theology, but is ahead of us, inviting us to follow where he leads. You see, the life of faith isn't about acquisition, but following and joining God in his redemption work. Now, John, uh, in his biography of Jesus, records an encounter that I think models this idea for us really well. It's in chapter 3. He says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, He cannot enter the world of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, or that you must start anew. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from, or even where it goes. 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How? How can this be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, but you don't understand this? You see, Nicodemus was a Jewish leader in Jesus' day. He was part of the religious Jewish sect known as the Pharisees. He was also part of an ecumenical ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. This is the group of sages that gathered to discuss religious and cultural law. The Roman government allowed this council, this council to prosecute, but their limitations were they couldn't put anyone to death. It represented the wisest of the two major philosophies, Jewish philosophies of Jesus' day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus one night. Now, some say that he came at night because he didn't want to be seen. Others speculate that nighttime reference is a symbolic um, idea that John writes about. He's constantly writing about the contrast of light and darkness. Regardless, he comes to Jesus, and he seems to be in a bit of a quandary. Jesus, you must be from God, because the things you say and do are remarkable. He doesn't seem to ask a question, but Jesus seems to respond to one. Because Jesus is reading between the lines here. Nicodemus is struggling because Jesus seems to be living out the will of the divine, but he's doing so outside of the lines. In other words, he's breaking the rules. Jesus' name has obviously come up in the Sanhedrin. This will be the group that will ultimately decide that Jesus should be put to death, and they will bring him to the Roman officials to have them do that very thing. Nicodemus is in conflict because he's drawn to this Jesus. He feels Jesus is of God, but it's outside the rigid lines governed by this ruling body, by Nicodemus' own religious experience. And what Jesus says to him is revolutionary and largely misunderstood and misinterpreted today. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Some translations would say born from above. But it doesn't matter. It's too late. The ink is dry on the bumper stickers. Part of the misunderstanding comes from the, the second half of that sentence that's also misunderstood. Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if the kingdom of God is about going to heaven, then being born again is about saying the sinner's prayer. I think this is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. And it's the one that has defined North American Christianity for the most part. But let's understand this anew. Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he recognizes that Jesus is revealing God's world within this one. Jesus' words have life, and Nicodemus is trying to make sense of it. And Jesus is saying to him, Nicodemus, if you want to see God's world at work here and now, you need to have a new perspective from above. You need a higher perspective, not the limited one that you've inherited and now practice. This totally lines up with Jesus' message, his inaugural message, which is change your thinking to a better way. Repent. The world of God is within reach. To be clear, I don't think Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, abandon your religious tradition. Instead, I think he's saying expand it. Jesus never seems to practice oppositional games. He doesn't pit the Pharisees, uh, the, the Pharisee Jewish sect against the Sadducee sect. Instead, he challenges all of them to think bigger, to think better, to think from a higher perspective. 
Nicodemus, Jesus says, you need to start over. In order for you to comprehend what I'm talking about, you've got to let go of the rigid system with you find yourself. Now, Nicodemus struggles with this. How? How is that even possible? Jesus then tells him that the world of God is best described like the wind. It moves, it blows, it's a dynamic experience. To experience God and God's world, you must be prepared for change, prepared for movement. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or even where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the very nature of following Jesus wherever he's taking us. This passage has had a huge impact on me, and I've experienced this. I have been Nicodemus. I have found myself coming to Jesus at night, but the darkness in my telling was the circumstances where I stood. Seven years ago, I found myself in the lower level of Toronto General Hospital. There's a large mezzanine there that faces University Avenue. It's a cafe with leather couches and chairs all over the place. It's massive. The bank of windows flood this mezzanine with natural light, and if you close your eyes, you could almost imagine you're in a beautiful cafe. But when you open them again, you're quickly reminded this is the basement of the Toronto General Hospital. The space is filled with people moving about, and I found comfort, strangely, by the fact that everyone there in that moment was connected by some form of suffering. The suffering that brought me to this metropolitan hospital, metropolitan hospital story, was, was my wife Amy. By this time, she'd been hospitalized for seven months, paralyzed for the same. We'd managed to connect with a top neurologist at Sunnybrook who wanted to try something that he called rescue therapy. He was hoping that it would have positive effects on Amy's paralysis. He then got us in contact with the top hematologist at Toronto General to perform a procedure called plasmapheresis. This is an invasive procedure and it would require 14 rounds over three weeks. I, I drove down to Toronto for every single one of those rounds and found myself in the same leather chair every time. But this day was different. The hope had been replaced with anger. The hematologist that morning informed us that after 12 procedures, he felt that there was no significant change, but he wanted to complete all 14 rounds. We were devastated. We'd put all our eggs in this basket because every other basket fell through. This was our last attempt at holding on to what we thought was our life. I had been raised in a charismatic home that taught me that everything happens for a reason. So, of course, when bad things happen, you begin to constantly search for loopholes and why this is going to turn out well in the end. But after seven months of gratuitous bad news, the circumstances began to poke holes in a faith that I had held on to since I was a child. It was brittle. As I scanned the crowds this morning, <clears throat> all these people, my eyes locked with an older man who looked to be in his late 60s across the room. I immediately looked away thinking it was somebody that I must know and I was in no mood to talk to anyone in my current state. But when I glanced up from my coffee, this old man was standing across from me. Do you mind if I sit here? He asked. I did in fact mind. In a room with ample seating for people to sit alone in their misery, why does this old man feel the need to spoon my anger? 
after an awkward silence. He broke the ice by saying, I could see you from across the room, and you look very angry. I was taken back by his boldness. I am angry, I said, looking at him with enough attitude that it should have ended the conversation. Do you mind if I ask who you're angry at, he said. I did mind. <laughs> it was none of his business. But as angry I, as I was at him, it only paled in comparison to the real victim of my anger. <laughs> I'm angry at God, I said abruptly. The silence that followed made me assume that I'd left him speechless. But I was wrong. He was merely allowing me to lower my guard enough to accept the next two statements that he was going to make. I don't think you are, he said, standing up. I looked at him with more intrigue than anger. Who does this stranger think he is? I looked at him and asked, then who am I mad at? I was shocked. He looked at me with his eyes both kind and wise, and he said, you're mad at what you thought was God. I was stunned. I looked down at the floor. I mumbled his words to hear them again from my own mouth. I looked up. He was gone. But the thought remained. All my anger hinged on a perspective of the world and everything in it. Pain, suffering, love, hope, faith, God, and the universe were all concepts that I thought I knew fairly well. And I was holding on to those concepts white-knuckled. My anger was a result of outcomes that I could not control. My answer was based on anomalies in the patterns that I had built my life on. Could it be true? Is it possible that what I thought about God was wrong or perhaps just incomplete? Something broke. Like a chain being cut, I felt a strange freedom from being tethered to a certainty. I didn't know what I believed in this moment. But what I did know is the version of God I walked into this hospital with was insufficient to handle my pain. So I left it there for the janitor to discard. I had a clarity without answers. I was born again. I had missed the understanding that faith was a way of being in the world, not a way of achieving or even escaping this world. Faith is a way of being in suffering as much as, as it is in discovering or creating joy. It isn't about escaping or bypassing the very things that make up this human experience. There's a word for those who try to avoid anything that is sad or troublesome, anything that evokes pain or suffering. We call it addiction. And in my work with Christians over the last 30 years, I've discovered so many are addicted to their theology. And here's the thing. It works until it doesn't. Like most things in life. They work until they don't, and when they don't, they really don't. I found myself with a faith that wasn't sufficient to handle my circumstances. It wasn't that I didn't have enough. Oh, trust me, I did. It was that my faith was in the wrong things. My life had changed, and for some reason I was taught that our faith never changes. But it does. It wants to, it desires to, it expands, it grows. You discover and you let go. I remember having a conversation with one of you years ago in the gym at the school where we were renting on a Sunday morning. This is back when we just started the parish. This individual is in the process of deconstructing. This is the intentional or non-intentional practice of taking apart your faith to see what's under the plaster. 
It's lifting the carpets to see what's actually, if there's hardwood. It's going into the attic and the basement to see what's hiding. And this person said to me in a moment of desperation, I've spent my whole life believing in Christianity, only to discover now that it was Jesus I should have put my faith in and not to practice. That it was Jesus who I follow, not Christianity. And that the two aren't necessarily synonymous, at least not anymore. They had a moment of clarity. They came to this idea not by new information, but by getting to the point of letting go of something that they'd held on to so tight. I remember sitting with someone so desperately searching for God in their life that they just couldn't figure out why it was so hard. They said, I want to believe that God loves me and I want that idea to change everything, but it just doesn't seem to be enough. I asked them to to consider maybe just changing it, reversing it. That maybe they were already full of ideas. And as the Buddhist parable says, you cannot pour into a full cup. I suggested that maybe, instead of thinking their awakening was going to come from something new that they didn't know, that it might come from them taking something they currently believe and letting it go. Maybe because it isn't true anymore. Or maybe it's just incomplete. Or maybe it's now harmful or toxic. What can I let go of, they asked me. Well, maybe, instead of thinking that by adding God's love to your life it will change everything, what if you can instead let go of the thought that there was ever a time that God didn't love you? And that was it. That melted them. Comprehending God's unconditional love doesn't come from adding, but subtracting. And faith isn't about holding your breath. Faith is the rhythm of discovery and letting go.